Let's pray. Father, we're not here this morning to uh, check a box and do a religious thing. And that should forgive us if we are. We really ask for that weird miracle of being drawn into your presence. We humble our hearts and we ask you to cleanse us. Forgive us, Lord, for the week we've had, the morning we've had. We've been casual about drawing near to you. So fill our hearts, Lord. Fill our lives. I hardly know what to say. We need you, and we acknowledge that this morning. That's not enough. We need you desperately. So we pray, Jesus, that you would come and be kind of first in our hearts and established. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. We're going to try this song again. This is a killer song, and I know we don't know it. But this is the, I don't know, I guess this is the theme for us, maybe this morning, maybe during the season of Lent. So uh, let's try this together. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul cries out. Let all that is within me pray. You got it now. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul cries out. Let all that is within me pray. Again. Bless the Think about that phrase, let all that is within me praise. Don't you know the psalmist is just trying to find some way to say, I am all in with praising you. Okay, so from the top, be uh, be still my heart and know. And we got to highlight again that line that John pointed out, be still my heart and know you are God alone. Stop thinking so much and just let go. Let's try it. Be still, my heart, and know you are God alone. Stop thinking so much and just let go. Be still, my soul, and rest. Humbly, I confess in my weakness, your strength is perfect. For you alone are God, there will be no other in you, have won my heart more than any other, so I will give it all, cause you gave it all to me. Okay, let's do that bridge, choir. Here we go. Bless the Lord.
right. <laughs> way, way to play a note, Phil. <laughs> so we're in our third week in a series of conversations about the rhythm of our lives. And we're looking at the Old Testament feasts and special occasions. Yes, I know that's weird. And it was weird for me this week. This was, I, I spent a lot of time preparing for it this morning, and it still feels, that was part of my pause at the beginning, still feels terribly disjointed. So I'm going to need you to work with me as I'm talking to make some sense out of what I'm saying. Today we're going to be looking at the Feast of Trumpets. That's not the way to introduce a conversation, by the way. But today we're going to be looking at the Feast of Trumpets. And a couple of things about this. Some of you, I know, have done studies of these things before. And they can be, for a certain kind of personality type, they can be very fascinating. And the history behind these feasts and celebrations in the Old Testament is really rich. And those of you who have done studies about this before, you may know that the the Feast of Trumpets typically is thought of as kind of foreshadowing and looking toward the second coming of Jesus. And that is an actual doctrine. If you're kind of new to spiritual things, that is an actual idea that Jesus himself and the writers of the New Testament and the church for centuries has historically been all in with. There's going to come a time when Jesus will actually come again. Now, the particulars of that we've debated about for centuries, but he will come again. And he will end history as we know it. And reality will change. It won't stop, but it will change. And this topic today kind of points toward that, but that's not even really what we're going to talk about today. The hard thing about looking at these feasts and these celebrations in the Old Testament, and if we're honest with ourselves, the hard thing a lot of times when we read the Old Testament, and maybe even when we read the Bible in general for some of us, you come to these passages that are like, what? What in the world does that mean? And you end up avoiding them or skirting past them. And, you know, I'm going to suggest to us that we do that at our detriment. So we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to dive in on one of those passages that you would look at if you opened your Bible one morning and read Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. You'd go, okay, that's absolutely nothing. I don't even know what I just read. It's got nothing to do with my day today. And it may. And it certainly has a great deal to do with your life overall. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to need more than his help. We're going to need him to be all in with us, which of course he is. And I'm going to need certainly your help to be all in with me because a lot of work, a lot of thoughts, and it really did not take shape for me until yesterday. And I'm not sure it did fully. Uh, But what we're going to end up with, here's where we're headed. We're going to end up with a general application that relates to rhythm, our conversation. Then we're going to end up with a really specific application that falls out of the meaning of this feast to the Old Testament saints, uh, to the people of God in the Old Testament. And it's really cool and awesome and all of that. And we've already prayed, so let's dive in. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 23, verses 23 through 25. And again, sorry for the spiritual aerobics, but we're going to go old school. 
If you would stand with me out of reverence for God's Word, and this is a particularly strange part of God's Word to us. It's brief, and it includes kind of references and allusions to worship practices that we don't understand, that seem completely weird to us. But we're going to read about the institution, the starting of the Feast of Trumpets. So that that occurs in two places, Leviticus chapter 23. We're also going to read Numbers 29. And I'm going to tell you in advance, one of the things that you're going to find is there's not a whole lot of information. I mean, you read these passages and you still don't know even what they did, much less what it meant. We'll talk about that in a second. Leviticus 23, Feast of Trumpets. The Lord said to Moses, okay, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. That's it. That's all he says. You should know one other thing as you be seated. You should know that there was a period of time, some of you will remember this, in Israel's history when they were ransacked and they were taken lock, stock, and barrel into exile in Babylon. And during that period, they spent a a generation and a half, a couple of generations almost, in Babylon, adopted some of the Babylonian habits and culture. And one of the things that happened there, the seventh month for in the Israelite agrarian calendar was the first month in the Babylonian calendar. So really, in later Israel's history, they had sort of two calendars that operated in conjunction with one another, And they kept that habit of the first of the year being what had originally been their seventh month. So Rosh Hashanah, their new year, happened on this same day. So the Feast of Trumpets was also Rosh Hashanah later in their history, their New Year celebration. Okay, now here's what it says about it in Numbers chapter 29. Same thing, the institution of this same feast. Numbers 29 verses 1 through 6. On the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It's a Sabbath, in other words. It's a day for you to sound the trumpets, literally a day of blowing. As an aroma pleasing to the Lord, prepare a burnt offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect, as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Some of you will remember the prayer effort we're trying right now. There's a little insert in your program. Love for you to tear that off and check off what you're willing to pray for and when. But the image that the prayer team wanted to use for that was a bowl of incense with smoke rising out of it like an aroma to the Lord. That's what our prayers are and our worship. Would the bull prepare a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, and the ram, two-tenths, and with each of the seven lambs, one-tenth, include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. These are in addition to the monthly and daily burnt offerings with their grain offerings and drink offerings as specified. They are offerings made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma. So don't you? You read that and you go, yes, that helps me know what to do on Monday. No, you don't. So... Two questions obviously naturally arise out of this. What in the world does this passage mean first? And, you know, what falls out of that is, why did they observe it? And how? And how did they understand it? And then the second question that falls out for us is, so what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with Jesus? And should we celebrate it? 
I'm not going to give a full answer to that. I intended to this morning, but we won't have time. I'll do that in a few weeks. But we don't celebrate the Old Testament festivals, and that's because Jesus has really completed all of this. It doesn't mean that we can't, but we don't. The church doesn't typically celebrate the festivals. But are there principles that underlie this that might apply to our lives? And there are. So the first thing we need to do is figure out what this passage means. So bear with me. I'm going to drive through this stuff here for a minute. As you can see, the passages we read which describe the institution of the Feast of Trumpets don't tell us much. In Leviticus 23, this celebration is called literally a day of remembrance. It's a sacred assembly during which they were to do no work. Then we don't learn anything really about how they observed it. And in Numbers 29, it's called a day of blowing. And there we learn about the makeup of the sacrifices that were required, but not much else. What what happened and why did they celebrate this? Did you notice this feast doesn't reference any historical event? Like, take the Passover, for example. In the Passover, they were supposed to remember God's deliverance of them from Egypt, but we get no such reference for the Feast of Trumpets. In fact, the name Feast of Trumpets was apparently applied to it in later generations, and not for any theological reason. This was probably because the day was kicked off by the sounding of the shofar, and that sound would have been so prominent and so memorable that it gave the feast its name. And uh, Rhonda ordered for me this week a shofar. This was literally a shofar. Not exactly made. It's cleaned up a little bit. Not exactly made the way they would have made them. The shofar are often rams, but not just rams, horns. They would take an off the animal, carved out and created into a horn. It was interesting when Rhonda was looking up how to buy a shofar from Amazon Prime, you could also buy, she kept running into mist that you spray to make up for the smell when you blow the shofar because evidently it's terrible. But this one doesn't make any sense. Kyle got a headache on the way to church this morning. He said trying to blow this thing and figure out how to make it. Maybe Phil can make a noise out of it, but most of the rest of us can't. But this is a shofar. Okay, so the blowing of this would have given the feast its name. However, we don't get any real direct information on what inspired this feast or what it meant or how they observed it. But we do get suggestions from other inferences in the Bible, even though there aren't many. And we get a great deal of information from extra-biblical material, starting from the century right before Jesus all the way through modern Jewish authors. And those sources are very consistent about their description of this, which gives us confidence in our understanding of the meaning of the celebration. So, what we can gather, I think, is profound. And it has some profound implications for us. So here's what we can learn about the meaning of the feast. And this is on the screen for you, so we can dial in on this. The Feast of Trumpets was instituted to remind God's people of God's desire to call them to repentance and to point them toward his great mercy. Okay, in support of this notion, you should notice that the shofar was the instrument associated with this feast. This, sometimes bigger than this. Now, don't get confused by the use of the word trumpets in the English Bible translations. Many of the references to trumpets in the Bible are really references to the shofar, that was the Hebrew word, including our passages. The Jews knew them as two different instruments. Trumpets were hammered out of steel and silver. This was made from an animal's horn, even though the English doesn't make this distinction. And it's interesting that the shofar is used for this feast. We might have expected trumpets to be blown for the, what we call the Feast of Trumpets instead of the shofar. After all, trumpets made a more beautiful sound 
And trumpets were associated already with sacrifices throughout the year. So why a shofar blast to initiate this festival? As it turns out, this is a significant hint about the meaning because the shofar was the instrument associated with God's law in their minds. In fact, the first use of the shofar in the Bible is in the wilderness when Moses came down from the mountain with God's law in his hand, Exodus 19.16. And several times in the Old Testament when there are significant readings of the text of God's word, they blow the shofar to announce and initiate it. Later in their history, we repeatedly see the shofar being used in the prophets to announce times of repentance. For example, Joel 2, verses 15 and 17, Joel says this, Blow the shofar in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, let the priests who minister before the people weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. And then in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, Isaiah says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like the shofar. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sin. So it seems clear that the Feast of Trumpets was instituted by God to call his people to repentance. Modern Jewish authors confirm this. Why don't you listen to a quote from Rabbi Yekiel Eckstein. In a 1984 book called What Christians Should Know About Jews and Judaism... Rabbi Eckstein said, the shofar, quote, is sounded on Rosh Hashanah to arouse us from our moral reverie, to call us to spiritual regeneration, and to alert us to the need to engage in teshuva. And teshuva is a Hebrew word for repentance. The shofar is the clarion call to perform teshuva, to search our deeds and mend our ways before the awesome day of judgment. The great 12th century Jewish philosopher, some of you have heard of this guy, Maimonides agreed. He said the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is a wake-up call for people to abandon their evil ways and return to God. And let me quote him. Quote, Awake, O you sleepers. Awake from your sleep. Search your deeds and turn in repentance, O you who forget the truth and vanities of time and go astray year after year after vanities and folly that neither profit nor, nor save you. But remember your Creator. Look at your souls and better your ways and actions. Let every one of you abandon his evil ways and his wicked thoughts and return to God so that he may have mercy upon you. And this, he says, about the Feast of Trumpets. In support of this, Menomides quotes several rabbis speaking about the Feast of Trumpets from the centuries just on either side of Jesus' life. So the Feast of Trumpets is, first of all, a call to repentance. The use of the shofar itself is proof of that, and later writings about the feast confirm this idea. But there's more. To add intensity to this call to repentance, they remind us that the movie that's running in the minds of God's people as the backdrop for this call to repentance was a heavenly trial. This is what they were imagining. Through the Feast of Trumpets, the Jews were annually reminded that their lives would be ultimately tried in God's court. In 1988, Rabbi Irving Greenberg wrote a book called Living the Jewish Way. This is what he said about observing the Feast of Trumpets. During this feast, quote, Jews envision a trial in which the individual stands before the one who knows all. One's life is placed on the balance scales. A thorough assessment is made. Is my life contributing to the balance of life or does the net effect of my actions tilt the scale toward death? He adds later, in the trial imagery, the shofar blast communicates this, Oye, Oye, the court is in session. The right honorable judge of the world is presiding. Think of that. God instituted an annual celebration, if you can call it that, which centered around repentance. This festival called people's imaginations to examine their lives. 
It reminded them that they will all ultimately be judged for what they've done and what they've left undone. This was an annual day, beginning with a blast from the shofar that brought to their minds God's law and the times that they were unable or unwilling to obey God's law. They were reminded that God the judge would one day sit on his throne and thoroughly inspect their lives and actions. Wow. One more side note. This happened on the first day of the seventh month every year. Although not really. They weren't any better at observing God's prescribed rhythm for their lives than we are at observing a godly rhythm for our lives. In fact, you get frequent indications that there were wholesale abandonment of this. Maybe that's because the first day of the seventh month was a really important time. This was at the end of the harvest. So this was the fall season. And this was the time when they were bringing in the last of the harvest and preparing for the lean months of the winter. This was also the the first rains. So it was important to gather in the harvest and to prepare the fields for next year's harvest. Critically important time, and God says to them, I want you to set aside today to remember repentance. Pause there. Hold that. We'll get back to that in a minute. And look, we need to remember that this image and this concept don't go away with Jesus. In fact, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Jesus said this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. I'm also reminded of Hebrews 9, 27, where the author of Hebrews says this, people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. The same imagery is frequently suggested by Old Testament prophets on a grander scale. They speak about a great day of judgment, a day some of you will remember is called the day of the Lord. And these discussions interestingly, often include the blowing of the shofar. Again, Joel chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Blow the shofar in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of judgment. In the same way, Zephaniah announced in chapter 1, quote, the great and terrible day of the Lord as, quote, a day of shofar blast. Don't miss this. This notion of God calling his court into session to assess my life, this image, this movie, is conjured in the minds of God-fearing Jews every year on the first day of the seventh month when they hear the shofar blast. And this was prescribed by God. This is what he intended for them. They were reminded to humble themselves, to open themselves up to God's judgment, to submit fully to his verdict and to repent. Anything that had driven them off the track of righteousness should be discarded. Anything that had distracted or worried or caused impurity or division, anything that had encouraged idolatry should be cut off from the people. This was a time for them to humble themselves in repentance in anticipation of God's judgment of their lives. However... Full stop. We can't think of this as some awful doom and gloom kind of thing. There's a second part of the picture of this festival that we shouldn't miss. The judgment that was inevitable, the day in court when each of us is examined by God, that judgment was to be understood in the context of mercy. Look, this wasn't, oh no, I'm awful, I've really blown it, 
and God is terrible and he's angry, so I'm going to be destroyed. No, this was, oh no, I've blown it, but God is good and he longs to show compassion and mercy to me. In fact, he wants to make me good like he is and I need to repent to allow that to happen. So this feast was also intended to point God's people toward God's mercy. Another modern author, a guy named Philip Goodman, explained it this way. On this day of judgment, motivated by a profound faith in God's mercy and loving kindness, the Jews rendered an accounting of his life and his actions during the past year before the supreme judge. But he does so with a feeling and an ardent hope that the Almighty will pardon his shortcomings and gratify his yearning for spiritual regeneration. So, the Feast of Trumpets happened 10 days before the Day of Atonement. And if you were here last week, you may remember our discussion of the Day of Atonement. This was the highest and holiest day of the year. This was the great annual celebration of God's forgiveness of us, which God offered to His people. Their sins were literally covered by an atoning sacrifice of one goat, and they were carried away on a second goat called the scapegoat. That's why the the biblical text that was read at the Feast of Trumpet celebration is the story of Abraham offering Isaac. We don't know that from the biblical text, but we know that from many centuries of reading about the Jews celebrating the Feast of Trumpets. They would read regularly the story of Abraham offering Isaac, and in this story, Abraham is willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But God intervenes and offers an alternative sacrifice, a ram caught in a bush. In this story, God, at the very last minute, intervenes and he shows mercy. I can't help but think, when I hear this, of one of my favorite Old Testament passages from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 30. This passage describes a time when Isaiah was trying to intervene in the decision of the king of Israel. The prevailing view of the court of Israel at the time was that they needed to make a treaty with Egypt to protect them from Assyria, who was encroaching. But Isaiah was insistent that this was a mistake and that it represented a lack of trust in God. And Isaiah said this. I want you to hear this. Chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. Isaiah says, look, in repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift as well. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. In other words, flapping in the breeze. Yet, the Lord still longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. The Feast of Trumpets was meant to be an annual reminder of the truth of Isaiah's words, a recognition that God is the judge, that He will ultimately assess our lives, that He alone can be trusted and that He can be trusted, Because his mercy is great and he longs to be merciful to us. Okay, that's all well and good. Moderately interesting to very interesting. Some of you are geeky enough. If I 
pulled out the whole drill and given you lots more quotes and all other kinds of Old Testament references, you would have dug it. What in the world does that have to do with us? I get that I'm supposed to be really good, Ed, but how does that really help me? Okay, so first of all, the general application point and then the specific application point that relates to the substance of this, the meaning of this feast. But the general application point, and you get it, this relates directly to the rhythm of our lives, doesn't it? God prescribed, let's repeat this, God prescribed that they set aside a day in the middle of a critically important time of the year to do no work but to focus on Him. Really, God? You want me to drag my kids all together and set aside a day, drag some of our best animals and grains, bring them up, have some feast with a stupid priest, do no work for the day, celebrate you, and by the way, be mournful and rip my clothes and think about my year and how terrible I've been. I need my children out in the field. We need to be busy. You want me to take a day and have a sacred assembly and do no work at one of the most critically important times of the year. You want me to take a Sabbath, and it's not even the regular Sabbath. I've got another Sabbath coming in three days. And God's answer is yes. Because this is the important thing. Our connection and your heart and your cleanness and your freedom, that's what's important. I'm the one that gave you that harvest. I'm the one that's going to bring it in. I'm the one that multiplies it. I'm the one that takes care of your need. Focus on me. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, why are you worried about your clothes or about your food or about your work project or about what you're going to do next in your career? Why are you worried about that? Don't you know? Look, look, at, the, look at those flowers. They're spectacularly gorgeous and they haven't worried a day. And those birds, they don't worry. But I take care of them. How much more am I going to take care of you? And then he says this to underscore it. Look, if you'll just seek first your connection with God, His kingdom, Jesus' word, His control in your life, submit to Him. If you'll seek that first, and His righteousness, being rightly connected with Him and walking in the right way. If you'll seek that first, everything else gets added in. I think of that illustration. You heard this before. I thought about bringing it this morning, but it's too much work. I thought of it too late. But the illustration of, you know, the big rocks and the little rocks, you've heard this in a container, and you have this pile of rocks, and here's your container get the rocks into the container and you, you, know, you pick up the little rocks and you put them in. You can't fit them all in. What you have to do first is put the big rocks in and then the little rocks will fall in around them. But if you put the little rocks in first, it doesn't work. That's the theory anyway. Look, our connection with God is the big rock. It's the thing that goes first. So, listen, Moses, tell the people on the first day of the seventh month in the middle of the back end of the harvest, First day of the seventh month, I want you to stand in the square and I want you to blow the shofar loudly and that's going to remind my people of my law. And they're the sp to spend the rest of the day focused on me, thinking about how I'm ultimately going to assess their lives. They're going to stand before me and give an account for what they've done. Think about it. And realize that I want to be merciful. 
And that's going to set them up for 10 straight days of thinking about it. And then on that 10th day, we are going to have a celebration when we realize that we're forgiven because of His activity in our lives. Then there's also a specific application, isn't there? The theme itself. God prescribed for His people an annual day of repentance. So it's not just the idea that we need to have a rhythm in our lives. We need to have a discipline in our lives that enhances our relationship with Him instead of, as we've said, a rhythm in our lives that seems to drag us away from Him. We don't control our schedules. Our schedules so often control us. And they're they're driven by work or they're driven by school or they're driven by the demands of our, our lives. They're not dictated by our connection with God. So that, first of all, the general principle, but then the specific principle, not only that, but they had as a part of their rhythm a day when they would just repent. That's what they did. During this day, they would be forced to assess their lives and to think of the end of their lives. God was forcing, listen, God was forcing the discipline on His people of living with the end in mind. He intended this to be built into the rhythm of their lives. On this day, they would recognize that He is God and He will ultimately judge and that that's where their lives were ultimately headed. Their lives were headed to this appointment with God. Here is the inescapable application for us. If we do not live our lives within the rhythm of a connection with God made possible for us and made real to us because of what Jesus Christ has done, then at the end of our lives we will stand before God and He will cut us off from His presence and from all that is real and free. If we do not live our lives within the rhythm of a connection with God made possible for us and made real to us because of what Jesus Christ has done, then at the end of our lives we will stand before God and He will cut us off from His presence and from what is real and free. I know for some of us it sounds like old school revival stuff. But that doesn't mean it's not true. This was the view reinforced for every participant in every feast of trumpets, and God meant it to be so. And this was the view of Jesus. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about the importance of forgiving others. And in that context, he tells a story. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. He goes on to tell the parable. Then he says this in summary. So this is what my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you. He will settle accounts. Later in his ministry, Jesus was talking directly about the judgment of God. Jesus went so far as to suggest that he would be involved in that judging process. Think about that. Listen to what he said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' favorite term for Himself, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, constantly giving them the hint that this isn't all, I'm going to come again, and I'm going to end history when I do. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25. I was going to talk this morning about the dangers of over-reading and under-reading passages like this. 
I did a lot of research on, you know, there are people who get freaky about this stuff. And they get so into this, it's, it's almost distracting. There's this whole crowd that thinks that we're, and I'll talk about this in a few weeks, that thinks that we're not Jewish enough. And there's a great deal of reality to that because our faith is based on Jewish backdrop. However, that can be taken entirely too far, and I intended to give you some examples of that. Just one example, and weirdly into the numbers in the New Testament. It's the seventh month, and I was going to talk about ways to just way overread that and, and be overly involved in the kind of weirdness of it that the Bible never intended. Then I was going to talk about the danger of under-reading. You know, we read a passage like that and we go, that's bizarre, I'm never going to look there again. And we don't do the work of drilling into what God might have for us because he does have things for us in all of this. I was going to conclude with the notion that that whole thing of God asking them to set a day aside and during this critical period and that spoke to us in our rhythm, blah, blah, blah. I was going to talk about Lent, blah, blah, blah. But the more I learned and the more I thought about this, the more I realized there's this powerful and very specific application for us that we need to live with the end in mind. We need to live with the fear of God before us. And that much of what passes for the change in our culture and our own personal, individual, and family moral lapses is because we don't live with the fear of God before us. We don't live being reminded that we're going to be assessed. We're going to stand before Him. That that's where all of our lives are going to end. And a hundred years from now, none of us will be alive. And we will have all experienced that. We will have stood before Him and our lives will have been assessed. So, I felt that we needed to spend some time this morning, a couple of minutes, in confession. And I'm going to ask the rest of you to stand. And we're going to read a slide together, and then we're going to pause with it. And we're going to do some work ourselves with it. Let's say this together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises, declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his name. Amen. Okay, so let's amen this by singing through that little chorus one more time, that one that was new to us. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here we go. Bless the Lord, O my soul, cries out. 
make this a prayer. Bless the Lord, oh my soul cries out. Let Father, we thank you so much that you promised us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we receive that cleansing this morning, no matter what we've done, no matter what we feel, no matter the mistakes that we've made, the colossal mistakes for some of us, the small ones all week long for others of us. We thank you, Lord, that in your mercy we are forgiven. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.